0: Thank you, Tom. So, uh, so we're in Hebrews uh, chapter three this morning, and um, I have been I've been away the last two weekends. So, I'm going to um, do do a little bit of summary of the book just to help me, and and maybe you are all up to speed. So, be patient with me as I do that, and then we'll uh, we'll get into the text. But in his introduction, I thought. Dan Seidelman did an awesome job of giving us a, an overview of what's happening in Hebrews. And he spoke of the pressure for converted Jews in the early church, you know, we think it's around 67 AD or so, to go back to the old covenant way of life, like the other good uh, Jews of the time, and go back to uh, a religion that is empty, a religion of rituals, and uh, in line with their um, society, in line with peers, and so on. And uh, chapters ten and twelve of Hebrews suggest that at this point the persecution, when this book is being read, is uh, is growing in intensity. So uh, these people are, um, you know, being ostracized, and uh, and certainly. Um, uh, starting to see some uh, physical persecution, and, and you know, a couple of years later, the temple will be destroyed. So, uh, in response to this, the writer of Hebrews uh, uh, writes this beautiful sermon, as as Dan refers to it, and uh, and essentially preaches Jesus Christ from the Scripture, their Old Testament, and uh, takes them through these. Uh, these key Jewish uh, pieces uh, through the lens of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did for them. Hebrews quotes the Old Testament uh, at least 40 times, so it's really dense with quotes, and, uh, and the author shows the, uh, the audience how Jesus transforms the old Levitical system which uh, these people have left. So we could summarize the book uh, in this way, and that is that believers in Jesus Christ as God's perfect sacrifice for sin have the perfect high priest. In him, everything is new and better compared to the covenant of law, the old way. And, the, and so the, uh, the writer uh, will display this. We're, we're still in the first section of the book. But he shows the superiority of Christ's position. Uh, He shows the superiority of Christ's priesthood. So the first four chapters, we we will see how Christ is better. The next four chapters, we will show how his priesthood is uh, is the ultimate priesthood. Uh, Then he will show the superiority of Jesus' priestly ministry. And then as he, as he pushes to the finish, the superiority of the believer's position in Jesus and the superiority of the believer's ministry. How should a believer uh, live in relation to this new covenant versus uh, the old covenant? So it's from this foundation that the writer's exposition of the Old Testament He'll give us several warning passages throughout uh, uh, this, uh, this book or exhortations in order to bolster and encourage these people who are being persecuted and ostracized. We have two themes that are like these two ribbons that are tightly wound running through Hebrews. One is Jesus as the ultimate Savior and Keeper of salvation and the uh, the second is the importance of holding on to him for our salvation, in other words don 't go back to your to conform to your Jewish rituals for a temporary relief a temporary salvation from the persecution now and uh, and so that kind of brings us to our uh, text this morning um, <clears throat> last uh, well yesterday, I got a text that the teens were going to be in here. Dan was sick and all this, so I've really made this kind of a teen-oriented class. So, just bear with me with if the uh, examples I use in the text are a little, you know, uh, too young. But <clears throat> so let's go to Hebrews three one through six. Okay, so uh, Hebrews three uh, reads like this: Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over god 's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope okay so uh, so this it 's a small piece of text here there 's uh, i think in the beginning some dense uh, uh, theological um, themes here that we want to. Touch on and uh, and of course we have to start with the question: Who is the greatest Jew of all time? To this audience, to the people uh, reading or hearing this uh, for the first time. So who is it? It's Moses, right? It's Big Mo. Okay, Big Mo is the Tom Brady of Jewish religion. I mean, he is it, right? Uh, he is the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time uh, when it comes to uh, nation Israel. And, uh, and if, we, if we think about that for, uh, for a little bit, uh, I, I was just reflecting on a recent trip that I made to Washington, D.C. Uh, who's been to Washington, D.C.? almost all of us, okay? So uh, I am probably the most right-wing person in this room. Uh, I'm not exactly a fan of big government, right? So I would lean towards a strict constitutional interpretation of the size and scope of government, right? In other words, I think most of it should be gone, okay? So I won't go any further and offend anybody. But uh, but if you go to DC like I did, uh, and you kind of tour the uh, you know the, the National Mall there and the stuff uh, close by like uh, um, you know the Supreme Court building and uh, and you know all of these key uh, representations of our government you 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 can't help but feel patriotic right i mean you you get this sense of awe for what um you know our republic has done and and uh and and this this sort of appreciation for government and uh you know we are a you know we're a republic we are a democracy think about what it would be for a, um, theocracy. Think about what your national identity would look like if you were God's people chosen by God, and your interaction was with people that were handpicked by God to act as a mediator, right? That's an entirely different level of, you know, pride of a nation and so on, right? So, uh, so Moses is our um, George Washington, right? But, but he's so much more than George Washington to these people. So you have to understand that when you hear these, uh, these words. Okay, so what's Moses known for? Give me three things. What's he known for? What is it? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. How about let my people go? It's a big deal, right? Uh, writing the law, big miracles, right? If you think of the Red Sea, God spoke to Moses. Moses was the man. When Miriam talked trash against Moses to Aaron in Numbers 12, God rebukes them and gives Miriam leprosy. Moses is important to God. Moses wasn't a priest, but he regularly interceded on behalf of the Israelites to God. He was pleading their case to God many, many times through his relationship. Of course, he's in the Hall of Faith, right, in uh, chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews think, Mo, thinks Moses is a big deal, and Big Mo is a big deal. Okay? So we have to come at it from that understanding that, uh, that this is no small thing. It, it's much smaller to us because we have grown up worshipping and loving Jesus, not Moses. Okay? So the main idea of this text, as we, as we get into it, is consider Jesus the high priest who has performed a superior sacrifice on your behalf. And hold on to your hope in this Jesus, the one who is greater than Moses, the Son of God, and the architect of God's house. He is the Lord of the manor. Okay? So, chapter 3 takes us on the next step in this logical progression of this message to the Hebrews. A new argument begins here because we start with the word therefore. In Chapter One, we get introduced to some of the themes of the book. Uh, we uh, uh, we see the uh, writer argue that uh, Jesus is superior to other heavenly beings. Right, he's superior to the angels. And in Chapter Two, we get a warning not to drift from what we have heard about Jesus. And then Chapter Three takes us on another uh, step closer to the center of theology, that Jesus Christ is the climax of redemptive history and the fulfillment of God's all God's Old Testament promises, prophecies, and his relationship goals with his people. So Jesus is greater than Moses. So in, uh, in 1 through 6 here, they're, they're fairly tightly connected, but if we look at verses 1 through 4, the writer starts with the text, therefore. So this new argument builds on the previous point. So we need to make sure we know where we're, we're jumping from. If we go back to chapter 2 to see where our writer is pulling this, uh, we can start by looking at verse 9. You can flip back real quick if you want. And, uh, and I'll just read a few verses here. So chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons and daughters to glory it is fitting it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. It's talking about Jesus there. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are in the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Therefore, trust this Jesus is going to be the next uh, point as we build on this. So Jesus has accomplished all the work necessary for salvation. He was tested and found trustworthy. Therefore, the author of Hebrews begins, Jesus is worthy of our full consideration. In order to fully consider jesus we need to, uh, we need to work on this first sentence there 's a lot uh, there 's a lot going on in the in the first sentence, so he says, "Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession so there 's a ton in there that we need to uh, to look at, and that 's the uh, the three things there 's three things that we need to pull out of this, um, this, first, uh, this first sentence. So <clears throat> uh, those three things are, uh, we, ha- we have a status uh, as family of the high priest. We are in that family line. We are holy priests, and we have a holy mission. So those things are assigned to us and think about that and the importance of that if you're being persecuted for being in this this family line. So before coming to the exhortation, the uh, author identifies his readers as holy brothers and sisters. That's, holy is a big deal if you recall. So we are those who share in the heavenly calling. The writer carries forward his previous point that we just read, In verses 8 through 11 from chapter 2, salvation in Jesus makes us family with him. Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Being in the family of God changes our status forever. Okay, so the writer describes us as holy brothers and sisters. It's this is important as well. This indicates that the blood of Christ has sanctified and cleansed his church. Holiness was an important feature of the Levitical system these Jews had left. Worshiping God correctly under the Old Covenant required holiness in every aspect of life among the Old Covenant people. Holiness could come through sacrifices. It was not a human trait. So when the author attributes a holy brotherhood status to the church, he's saying they are holy on the basis of the sacrifice Jesus has made on their behalf. This reference from uh, from chapter 2. The heavenly calling of the church uh, that the church shares with her high priest refers to the church and transforms her into his people, people with a heavenly calling. In this first sentence, the author tells us the blood of Christ has cleansed you, and you are now destined for a heavenly glory according to god 's perfect plan. This is a great reminder, so Christian, when you are low, you do well to remember this. Uh, if a friend encourages me this way, I know that he or she is a true friend that there is a there is a plan there is a job for me as a uh, as a priestly member of Jesus' family. And so, with these three things in mind, now we can, uh, we can push to the two points that the, uh, the author makes here in the text. Okay, So, the author tells the church to consider Jesus, but don't just think about him. Think about him properly. So, in chapter 2, he describes Jesus as the heart, or the center, of Christianity. To encourage, discourage Christians, the writer of Hebrews wants the church to have the proper worldview. So, everyone has a worldview. They have a philosophy that they look uh, through to see the world. So, you can see the world as an atheist. And so when you see things happening, difficulties in your life or whatever, you see these things as random. These are random things with no, no purpose, right? So, uh, so there's no hope in that, and these are just things that happen, maybe for some uh, mathematical reason. You may believe that you were created by God for his own glory. That's another worldview, so when things are tough, we might find comfort that it's God's plan for us to be going through whatever tough thing that we're going through. That's another worldview, okay? So uh, so these worldviews exist, and when we get discouraged, we can look down. We can sort of forget our new view through Jesus and uh, and... Look down and get distracted. We have tons of examples of the Israelites doing this. We talked about them rebuilding the temple. Think about that. Uh, the author will, in a minute, be talking about the uh, uh, their time in the wilderness. They watch Egypt fall into a watery grave in the Red Sea, and and minutes after it's closed up, they're complaining about uh, the food and lodging uh, on their way to the promised land. They've just been delivered. And how easy it is for us also to sort of look down and forget uh, our proper view uh, of Jesus. So, we have to see Christ as Scripture reveals him, right? Uh, I've got two things on the board. This is your handout. It's not, uh, it's not a Cliff Buttermore handout, okay? Do you know the science that goes into a Cliff Buttermore handout? You've got to have two documents that go in the printer the right way, come out. And wh- yeah. Okay, so, um, so I did it once, and it, it took like 13 hours, you know, Jeff's help. So here's your handout, okay, from a guy who's been on vacation for the last couple of weeks. But, uh, but over here, we have Big Mo versus Jesus. Right? So we've got, we've got this, and, uh, and this is what the writer's referring to. So Moses was a servant. He was sent. He acted as a mediator, these things that we talked about. He did a good job, mostly, right? Uh, sort of finished his plan. We'll talk about that. I've got a question mark there. And he was a worker in God's plan, in God's house, right? God's household, really, is what the word means, right? And so uh, we're comparing him to Jesus, who acted like a servant, right? He was sent by God uh, to do a, a thing. He was a mediator. He finished his job perfectly. It was a job well done, right? The Father even said so verbally. His work is finished and the big difference here is that he's the architect. So Moses is a guy working a plan, but it's someone else's plan. It's Jesus' plan. Okay. So uh, as we keep those things in mind, we need to see Jesus correctly, that he's not just another uh, Moses who's maybe uh, you know, better leadership skills, taller, better looking, that kind of thing. Right, it's his plan uh, that Moses was uh, sort of working out for a time. Okay, so uh, so Jesus isn't quite like Moses. We see that um, uh, he is our apostle and high priest. He has a higher status there than uh, than Moses. Uh, in in verse one, apostle. Uh, he's referred to. It means sent one. Jesus was sent by the Father with a mission to accomplish, and he completed it. He fulfills the Old Testament prophecy of a new high priest in a new temple, which will unfold in later chapters. So I don't want to, you know, steal uh, too uh, too much from the uh, the future chapters. I don't want to get too far ahead of the text. So. The point here in the first point that our author makes is that Jesus is better than Moses and all Moses represents. The author wants to consider us to consider the faithfulness of Christ. He j- demonstrates this by comparing the two. Now, the audience is Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Their theology comes from the Old Testament. These people had great reverence for Big Mo And to keep them from turning from the faith, the writer systematically shows Christ's superiority to the Old Covenant. And that makes this a beautiful work indeed. So while Moses was a key figure in Judaism, Big Mo represents the Old Way. He led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, but he failed to lead them into rest in the Promised Land, if you recall. Jesus, the second Moses, leads his people out of bondage to sin and takes them all the way to the kingdom of God. Amen. so Jesus finished what Moses started, really Mo- Moses was a pawn in a game designed by Jesus, executed and played perfectly by jesus okay so that so that 's the first point we want to. Make sure we understand these are converted uh, Jews, so they 're worshiping jesus he He wants to remind them who they 're worshiping okay uh, and so he pushes this they're they 're very tightly connected here the next couple of verses in in verse five and six. Jesus is the hope of god 's house, so we see this word a few times so the uh, the most used word in this text is. Is house. If we add architect, it's even more right. So we're talking about building a house, and it's really a household. It's a uh, it's a it's a family that we're referring to. Uh, it's chapter two that that we talked about. It's brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, we have a new kingdom that Jesus uh, is building here with His church. Okay, so. The author continues to lift up Jesus as we press into uh, the end of verse 4, into verse 5, the first half of verse 6. Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. Sonship is greater than servanthood, we see in the text. Most of the time, the word servant in our translation comes from what word? You guys remember the word? doulos right that that's a that's uh, when when paul's using the word servant it's uh it's doulos right that's not the word here so doulos is uh is a slave term right and and paul uh says that he's a slave to christ he's you know uses this kind of language uh that is synonymous with a low position this word is uh, is therapon. This is a noble position uh, under the authority of the one who appointed him. This is a rank of honor. Okay, if it, if it were my dad, he would make he would make this pun. You know, he would uh, he would say Moses was uh, was the chief of staff, right? You know, so the staff, right? All right, so whoo uh, Okay. That's what my dad, I wouldn't have even thought of that, you know, so, you know, but, uh, but this is a, this is a senior position. This is, he was handpicked by God to lead God's people, to mediate for God people. This isn't slave talk. This is a position of honor. Okay. So when he says Moses was a faithful servant, you know, I start to struggle with that at first because Big Mo had a little bit of a temper, right? He made a few mistakes along the way and after all, what kind of leader, you know, can't hold his people together, right? They were a bunch of whiny grumblers and you know, didn't like manna whatever, you know, all this, you know, cinnamon rolls every day. That's my that's my diet. Sign me up, right? Um, see, there's my nod to Dan, right? The food network, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but how was he faithful? Verse 5 says, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In Deuteronomy 18.5, Moses says, hey, there's, a, there's another one coming he says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your fellow Israelites you must listen to him. He's talking about Jesus. He Moses was faithful both in his life in his words and in his writing of the law to point to Jesus. All of these things Paul says in Romans 3:21 Paul says that the law and the prophets bore witness to the righteousness of God, available to sinners through Jesus Christ. And in that, Moses accomplished exactly what the Lord would have him accomplish. So he was faithful. Moses was a faithful servant, but still just a servant. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is not a servant he is the lord of the house, the lord of the manor. His household is the church he built by shedding his blood for sinners. When the author says, we are the household, he affirms the deity of Christ. In verse 5, he calls it God's household, and in verse 6, he refers to Christ. So, he says, this is God's household, if you church hold on to Jesus, you are God's family. You see that? So he he creates this tight connection that if we are in Jesus, we are in God's family with him. And so uh and so the um final phrase brings us to the I don't know, most uh most difficult piece of the text. Uh so just to uh, just to be clear, that threw me off. The little burp or whatever over there. I was just like, well, I lost my notes. Uh, sorry about that. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. So so let me let me say that Jesus is both the eternal Creator in verse four and Redeemer in verse five and six of God's people. Okay, so I don't want to like i don 't want to skip that uh, that point, okay, so having that in mind, we get to this uh, this potentially challenging last sentence, and we are in his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our help, so we got this if word here which could pose uh, a little bit of a problem and It may still pose a problem after I talk about it. We'll see. Um, Okay, so the author of Hebrews and all of Scripture teaches that only those who persevere in faith will be saved and that all who have genuine faith will persevere. Okay? So believers make up the house of God, which is to say the church is made up of persevering believers who have authentic faith. Our works don't save us or keep us saved. We have plenty of text in, uh, in certainly from uh, from all of the New Testament writers that say only Christ can save us. The writer says our only hope is to hold on to our confidence in the finished work of Christ. He's not saying that we get into the kingdom by faith and stay by works. He's saying that we enter God's kingdom by a faith that will persevere. Mm-hmm. He's encouraging Christians in the church to hold on to that and faith and to persevere. Trust Christ's righteousness belongs to us. He is our only hope. So this is about people like people from the beginning of time till now when things don't go their way. They uh, they lift or they drop their view from Jesus and start to think inward nasty thoughts. Okay, Um, you you know, I do this if if there's something big that I'm praying for and I and I don't get my way, I'm not getting my way. We talked about this in uh, community group in our first one how. uh, when we fall on hard times, when when I do, I do this terrible, terrible thing. I pray, and it's all I pray about. And I have this attitude like, Lord, we've got this thing that you haven't solved in my favor, and I don't really have anything else to talk to you about until you sort that out my way. It's a wicked, wicked thing that I do. Okay? And, uh, and... I may have this conversation with him for a long time before somebody uh, helps me to uh, get out of it. Now is that me putting my confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ? It's me betting on Jesus finishing my work. It's me uh, forgetting whose plan this is, right? And. Uh, and trying to order Jesus around like a do-loss employee, right? It's terrible. It's, um, it's wicked. So the author doesn't want his church hearers to do this. He wants to right the ship, if you will, and put Jesus back on display as a proper, his proper place as scripture uh, reveals him. And... We need to be warned against this, right? Any one of us can do this, right? Um, so, uh, So, go back to your temple and put your faith in Moses and all he represents. And like Moses, you will not enter the rest that you find in the promised land. But, he says, if you persevere by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you find peace and rest in a place of honor in his household, you, you identify with him. And to me, that, uh, that is a much better place to be when, the, uh, when life's not going my way, right? I don't uh, run the risk of getting you know uh, uh, ridiculed and beaten and things like that because I'm a believer, but still I go through difficult times right so not only do i have this peace and rest in the work that jesus did on my behalf to buy me into his family i have direct access to the throne room through him and israelites never had that in moes way right no one would be in the holy of holies right you don't get to enter that room in the old covenant way, the new covenant way is so much better. We are priests now instead of slaves to the law. Just think about that i was I was thinking about like why this is important, why this text uh, matters, and uh, we are lords of god 's house rather than slaves to the old system of law so from a moral standpoint, we we kind of get to the same place if you think about it, right? So because we have Jesus' righteousness doesn't mean we just woo do do whatever we want. From a moral standpoint, we uh, we know God's character thanks to the law, right? So we don't we don't have this pass on uh, you know lying, cheating, stealing, murder things that we live according to God's character. That was laid out in the law, but it's just we we have a different life. So the life of an Israelite was, oops, sin, sacrifice, and we're stuck in this sort of negative loop. Sacrifice is always going up to God because we are sinful people. So we're stuck in that 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 loop of uh, you know I I'd have to bring a Lamb with me to work every day to ride next to me in my car as I break multiple, you know, laws of decency and ethics and honor and stuff like that on my way to work in my heart, you know. But now, because I'm free of this, I can live as worship to Jesus. I have a job to act as uh, his priest and his mediator. So Sure, I will sin and confess my sin, and I have that uh, that responsibility. But we do for others now in our new status what uh, what Moses did for the Israelites, what Jesus do- does and did for us, which is to uh, to mediate for us and act as our high priest to intercede for us. Now, my job is not... Uh, a full-time sacrifice uh, lifestyle, but it's a a lifestyle where I sacrifice what I only have, which is my life, living for him as a priest in his house, bringing uh, sinners to him as a mediator to Jesus. And so we get to holiness now a very different way. We have the status, we don't have to earn it, so now we live a life poured out in sacrifice. Okay, And so, uh, so if the church is getting persecuted here, these Hellenistic Jews in the, uh, in the mid-60s, they are right where they're supposed to be. And Bobby Bays can tell you that when, uh, when you are right where God wants you to be, that there is no better place in the world to be. Okay, it's 1015. We're gone.